Good. Wow. We're going to be picking up again in our series Summer Fruit this afternoon, uh, which we've uh, had a couple of weeks out of, but we're back today and looking at gentleness. So we've already done love, joy, peace, patience. What else have we done? Kindness, goodness, and now on to gentleness. Good. You'll notice the change in order. We've skipped over faithfulness. It's not that we're not interested in faithfulness. It's that Dave's speaking about faithfulness next Sunday. Um, So today we are looking at gentleness. And and as we've done with a few of these uh, from that list of the fruit of the Spirit, these characteristics that should be borne out in the lives of Christians, should be visible in the way we live as those who follow Christ. And as we've looked at that list, some of the English words we've got, we've realized they're not massively helpful necessarily. Uh, And so we're going to seek to, uh, as well as looking at, at what that word actually means, look elsewhere in Scripture to help us flesh out what that looks like uh, in life uh, and what it should look like in our lives. Uh, And so this word gentleness, again, I think to our minds, probably looks quite weak when we think of gentleness often. But actually the word that's translated gentleness could also be translated humility or meekness. And the, the, the word actually, the, the kind of meaning that it conveys is a, a kind of gentle strength. There's something of power and strength in it. It's not about being weak or impotent, actually. It's that the word communicates a sense of power with reserve or power with appropriate restraint. It's not about being weak or impotent. Instead, it's a call to exercise restraint and to use your strength, whatever that may be, to protect, shelter, and prefer other people. That's what this word gentleness means. Rather than using your strength to selfishly get your own way by force, it means using your strength to love and serve others. And there's loads of ways that this can be worked out, aren't there? It's not just about, if we look on the negative for a moment, it's not just about physical strength. People actually have all kinds of strengths and skills that they use to get their own way, to to do the opposite of gentleness. Yeah, you know that from life, don't you? Maybe you've never experienced that. But I think you know it. You know it from your own life. You know it from your observation of the lives of others that people have all kinds of skills and strengths and abilities that they have a choice with what they do with. They can either wield those things in order to get what they want or they can use them to prefer and serve others. You find people use very skilled in using emotions and emotional manipulation to get what they want. People who are really smart use their intellect to get what they want. But gentleness, and this word gentleness, means laying down that. 
It means using the strength you have, whether it's physical, emotional, intellectual, whatever it may be, and using it to care for and protect others. It's the opposite of grasping for position, possessions, or power. But what does that look like in practice? (laughs) And how do we grow in it? Well, I want us to look, and we're going to spend a decent chunk of time today, in what might at first seem to you an unusual place to look for this subject of gentleness. So I wonder if you could open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. We're going to look at an example from the life of Abraham. And I hope as we go through it, you'll see why. So just to pop it in context... In chapter, the t- latter part of chapter 11, the first part of chapter 12, we find Abraham is called by God. He's a man whose wife, Sarai, is barren. He has no heir, and yet God has promised him a land. God has promised him an incredible heritage. God has promised him that he'll be the father of a great nation, this aging man with a barren wife, that he'll be the father of a great nation, and that through him and through his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham followed God's instruction on the back of that promise to leave his homeland, to leave the place where he had been living, and to head to the promised land, to this land which God had promised to give to him and his descendants. And to be frank, it's not gone brilliantly so far. Like, Abraham started well. He heard God's call. He (laughs) received the promise, and he set off. Tick. Yes, Abraham. Obedience. Faithfulness. Trusting God. Great. Good. But pretty quickly, it took a bad turn. There's a famine, and so Abraham took a detour away from where they were supposed to be going and into Egypt, where Abraham's fear and failure to trust God led to a pretty messy situation. You can read about that for yourself some other time in Genesis 12. But God, in his kindness, rescued Abraham rescued him and his family. In spite of Abraham's foolishness, God proved himself faithful. And he rescued them out of Egypt. And actually, Abraham left Egypt a very wealthy man and continued on the journey to the land which which God had promised to him. And so we're going to read from Genesis chapter 13. We'll do as we often do. We'll read a handful of verses, pause, unpack it a bit and move on. So we're reading from 13 verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there 
Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So far, so good, Abram. He's back on track. He's, what he's done is he's returned to a place within the land that God's called him to. The, the land that God has promised he's going to inherit. And he's returned there to worship God. It's a picture of repentance. He, he knows <laughs> Egypt was a, a boo-boo. <laughs> Egypt was a bad idea. And God has rescued him out. And now Abraham comes back to worship God. He knew he'd messed up. But he comes now to this place where he'd met with God before, where he'd built an altar to worship, and he comes back to remember God's promises to him, that this land that he looks out on would be the inheritance for his offspring that he doesn't yet have because his wife is still barren. He comes back to call upon the name of the Lord. And we have to notice this at, at this point. I think it's important for us. Abraham, at the start of his journey, he didn't have a huge amount. He wasn't completely impoverished. This point now, Abraham is a wealthy man. He's got a huge crew with him. Lots of money, lots of cattle, lots of servants and herdsmen. It would have been very easy for Abraham to begin trusting those things. Very easy. When we experience a measure of success, of power, position, possessions, it's easy to begin to trust in those things to secure us. It's easy to begin to trust in those things and to back off from trusting in God. It would have been easy for Abraham coming out of Egypt to go, like, I'm pretty comfortable actually. I've kind of made it. Like, I've, I've got all this stuff, all these people around me. Like, just, I could make a, a nice life for myself here. But he knew that wasn't what God had called him to. He wasn't going to trust in those things. And so he came back to call on the Lord. He worships God and acknowledges again his dependence on him. He's reliant on God. All seems pretty good at this point. But it doesn't take long for us to hit a problem. We read from verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. You think, oh, it's great. It's not just Lot. Lot's nephew, who's gone with him, has been blessed too. And he's also got a great deal of stuff. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. See, the land God has promised to Abraham and to his people is still inhabited by other nations. And there's not enough space for both Abraham and his nephew, Lot, to camp together anymore. Now, this is interesting, what's going to happen here. Now, Abraham has allowed Lot to come with him. Now, that might seem like a strange move, but actually, it tells us something about Abraham. Because Lot is the son of Abraham's only brother. 
who has passed away. He had no one to care for him. Abraham feels a sense of responsibility, a duty of care for his nephew. And so he's taken him with him. And now the lack of space is causing tension. The herdsmen are beginning to argue over the best pasture for their sheep. Actually, where they are, the pasture isn't brilliant anyway. (laughs) It's not particularly well-watered lands. And they're beginning to argue. And so Abraham comes to Lot with a solution. We read on from verse 8 together. Then Abraham said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen or brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. There's not sufficient space where they are, and so Abraham comes to Lot with a solution. Now, remember, the whole land, (laughs) the whole land has been promised to Abraham and his offspring. But Abraham here offers Lot the choice of where he's going to settle. It's interesting, isn't it? It's Abraham's land. But he gives Lot the choice of where he's going to go. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. That just means like Eden. Picture paradise. That's what he sees. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Lot looks over the land, which large chunks of are not particularly green and fruitful. (laughs) And he spots there the Jordan Valley, which is like the garden of the Lord. It's beautiful. It's green. It's fruitful. Paradise. It's well-watered. The temptation would have been real, right? To go, that's the bit I want. (laughs) Like this all brown and dusty, not so keen, that there, green, lush, beautiful, fruitful. Yes, I'll take that bit, please. I mean, this is often harder for us to picture than it is right now because we generally live in a very green and pleasant land. But if you've been out into your garden recently then what you'll have seen is probably still more green than Abraham and Lot would have been standing in the middle of, but it's pretty brown and dusty and dry and parched and everything's withered and it's not growing. And if you're anything like me, you're looking at your flower beds going, why did I bother? And Imagine you're living out in that intense, And you spot lush, green pastures, fruit trees, shade, running cool water. Without a thought for his uncle, Lot picks the best spot for himself. And he goes for it. And Abraham keeps his word. And he doesn't oppose him. 
We read on. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. It looks at first glance like Lot has chosen the best of the land for himself. He's got the bit that looks amazing on the surface, appealing. But it's actually not as good as it first appeared. His new neighbors are not a good bunch. Life in Sodom for Lot is not going to turn out well. You can read the rest of his story for yourself, but if you don't know it, the line, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, should be enough of a clue that Lot's in trouble. And actually, it turns out he needs rescuing. Remarkably, more than once. (laughs) Rescued once, you'd think he'd get the hint. He goes back there and has to be rescued again. But we read on, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards and eastwards and westwards, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. God restates his promise to Abraham. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent, and he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God comes again to meet with Abraham, and he restates his promise to him. Abraham, all this land is yours. And I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. I just love the kindness of God in this, in this moment. The barrenness that Abraham is experiencing, that he's standing in the middle of, that he's looking out over. After his nephew has chosen the lush green pasture is actually going to become a reminder of God's promise to him. Abraham may well have been thinking at that point, well, look at this. All this dust. Nothing's going to grow here. How am I supposed to pasture animals here? And God says to him, look at the dust. And Abraham's like, I'm looking at it. (laughs) And God says to him, your descendants are going to be as numerous as that. In the kindness of God, even the barren place that Abraham was standing in would serve as a visual reminder of the promise of God. What looked like loss was in fact victory. It's amazing, isn't it? We see that so often in Scripture. And you might be thinking now, though, This is all very nice, Owen. But what's it got to do with gentleness? And my answer is everything. Because in that moment, as he engaged with his nephew, 
Abraham modeled the kind of gentleness to which we're called. And the kind of gentleness which Christ modeled so perfectly and the kind of gentleness that inevitably steadily grows in the lives of those who put their trust in Jesus. And Lot, for his part in the story, modeled the polar opposite. He was looking out for number one. He acted out of selfish ambition. He grasped for what he thought would suit him best. When we put ourselves first, when we don't trust God to provide, we try to take the biggest and the best for ourselves, just like Lot. If you've got children or you've had young children, you'll have observed this. Ever put out a cake or cut a cake with a group of children present? Instinctively, they go for the biggest piece. They grab for the biggest. It's how we're wired, isn't it? Like lots of us as adults probably are inclined to do the same as well. Unless you remember your manners and your mum saying something to you like, take the one closest to you. And if your mum said that to you, that was what my mum always said to me. She's like, it's good manners, just take the one closest to you. I'm like, but Becky's got a bigger one. Take the one closest. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's an aside. <laughs> Lot shows what looked good on the surface out of selfish motive. It turned out to be disaster, as is often the case. Now read Proverbs 14, 12. says, there is a way that seems right to a man. I'm sure Lot thought he was doing a very good thing for himself by choosing those green, pleasant lands. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Seeking our own good ultimately sets us in opposition to God. And sooner or later, the fruit of that finds us out. It didn't take very long to find Lot out. For some, it takes longer. You know, sometimes it looks like the wicked prosper while the gentle and meek are left with the dog ends. That's what it looked like in this picture at first, right? Lot gets the amazing plot and Abraham's left in the dust. But in the end, like Lot, it will unravel. Sometimes the consequence and impact of living in rebellion to God is obvious and immediate, like it was for Lot. Sometimes it takes time, and in some cases it won't be known or realized until Christ returns. But in the end, no one gets away with anything. Guys, we're called to something different. We're called to gentleness. Remember, gentleness is exercising restraint. It's using your strength to protect shelter and prefer others rather than selfishly trying to get your own way. It means putting others first. It means looking for opportunities to provide for others rather than grab for yourself. But that's not in our human nature. <laughs> it's not what we naturally incline towards. Yet Abraham here models it amazingly. Let's just look through his interactions again. Remember, Abraham was in a position of power and seniority over Lot. He was his uncle in a culture that, that was highly respectful 
of elders. But instead of using his position to his advantage, he put Lot first and cared for him. The whole land had been promised to Abraham, hadn't it? But he didn't grasp for it. And he didn't, when it came to conflict, say to Lot, hey Lot, look, there's just not enough space for both of us, so jog on. This is my land. God's promised it to me. You're just going to have to go. He was open-handed and generous. He wanted to ensure that Lot was well provided for too. It's not his fault that Lot chose foolishly, but he was open-handed and generous. He thought of Lot first. It's important to see too in this that actually gentleness isn't a call to passivity or being a doormat. It's not how Abraham behaved, is it? You know, they didn't get to a point of conflict and Lot storm off and take what he wanted by force. Abraham took the initiative, came to Lot. He, he wasn't kind of bullied into this. He used his position of power and authority and strength to serve his nephew. But taking the initiative doesn't mean grasping for what you want either. Abraham took the initiative, but he took the initiative to serve rather than to get what he wanted. What allowed Abraham to model this kind of gentleness? Because it is quite remarkable, isn't it? You think, he knows the promise of God. This land is his. And yet he's incredibly open-handed and generous with his nephew. The trusting the sovereignty and goodness of God changed everything for Abraham. He knew that God had promised him and his descendants the land. And if God had promised it, then nothing could change that. If God had promised it, then God would provide it. That's always the way it is with God. Abraham trusted in the promise of God, but he also trusted the timing of God. It would be easy to be grabby, wouldn't it? (laughs) If you just put yourself in Abraham's shoes. God has promised it to me, so I'm going to take it now. And Lot, actually, you should be serving me. Like, really, all your herds are by rights my herds anyway, so... Just get in line. But instead, he's secure. He doesn't feel threatened by Lot. He's secure in God's promise because he knows God is faithful. (laughs) Guys, in Jesus, we have been promised a better inheritance than Abraham was. We've been promised a new and better land. an eternal inheritance. We need to learn to rest in that. And actually all that we have here and now comes from him too. When we understand that, when we live in the good of that, it loosens our grip on stuff. Leads us to be a gentle people. 
We don't have to jostle for position or fight for things to be our way. We can rest in the promises of God and trust in his provision. See, the world will tell you that the way to get ahead is to look out for number one. Don't expect anyone else to do it for you. You look out for number one. You make sure that you, you know, just like Lot did. But that's not the call of God on your life if you're a Christian. And crucially, it's also not the model we've received in Jesus. So how did Jesus model this? I mean, we could spend (laughs) weeks, months, years going through the Gospels and looking at examples in the life of Christ and the way he modeled gentleness. I mean, just, he had unmatched power, unrivaled authority. I mean, he's the one, Will referenced it earlier, who literally could stand up in a boat and say, wind, waves, shh. And they obeyed him. The king of heaven. And yet he displayed incredible gentleness, power with restraint. I mean, seriously, the opposition and accusations and in the end beating and torture and torment that Christ received at the hands of people who he had created, at the hands of people whose very breath he was providing, at the hands of people who he was about to go to the cross for, to die in their place so that they could be forgiven and receive life. I'm staggering the way he responded. Gentleness. I mean, seriously. <laughs> like, I, I think I'd have smoked them. <laughs> and I think you probably would have too. <laughs> I mean, just the gentleness that Christ displayed. Jesus never grasped for power, but he laid his life down and trusted his Father in heaven. Actually, there's some amazing parallels between the way Abraham was with Lot and the way Christ was. Abraham had a land promised that he didn't grab for in that moment. Jesus is the true and final fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. The the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The whole earth is his. (laughs) And the devil took him up on a mountain. We read the temptation of Jesus in Luke's gospel and offered him the land, offered him the worship of people there and then. Said, if you bow down to me, all of this I'll give to you. And all of these people will bow down and worship you. The devil offered Jesus a shortcut to receive worship without the cross. Tempted him to take matters into his own hands. To grasp at that which was rightfully his. To not trust the timing and the way of the Father. But to take matters into his own hands. To take a shortcut, but Jesus wouldn't do it. Gentleness. Even though he knew it would be his. 
to seize glory for himself in that moment without going to the cross. He would have received glory, and rightly so. He deserves the glory and the honor. Belongs to him rightly. But instead of seizing for it in that moment, he thought of you. In gentleness, he used his power with restraint to endure the cross so that you could be forgiven. Staggering, isn't it? He was quiet before his accusers. Just as was prophesied in Isaiah. He stood before his accusers, a fully innocent man. And he didn't retaliate or hit out. He said of his self many times that he was taking the initiative out of gentleness, just like Abraham had done. He said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. He wasn't passive in his gentleness. He wasn't a doormat. He was in authority. But in his authority, he willingly lay his life down for you. Amazing. What a saviour we have. So how do we grow in gentleness? Remember the promise of God. Trust in his faithfulness. Trust in his timing. Treasure intimacy with him. Treasure the prospect of eternity in his presence. Prize him above everything else. Rest in his goodness. Thank him for his provision. And as we do, gentleness will be the fruit of our lives. Not grasping for things. Not looking for position, possessions or power. But resting in the provision of God. And resting in the promises of God. Ultimately, that will be with him forever. I want to pray for you, and then I'm going to invite Johnny and Mitch and Soph to come and lead us in worship again. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for your perfect example of gentleness. Lord, we thank you, too, for others like Abraham, who we find in your word, who model these things, the fruit in their lives of trusting in you. God, I pray that you would secure us now in your promises. Lord, for every person in this room who has put their trust in you, for every person in this room who has said, Lord, forgive me, I want to accept your promise of eternity with you, I want to accept your promise of eternal life with you, Lord, I pray for each and every person who's done that, who's turned their back on going their own way and has said, Lord, I want to follow you. Would you help me to do that? God, for each and every person, would you secure us again now?
in your promise. Lord, as Abraham came back to the altar, came back to remembering your promise to him and calling out to you and depending on you, Lord, I pray now will you bring us back as we come to take communion in a moment, bring us back to that place of remembering what you've done to secure your promise towards us, to secure our inheritance, to seal our forgiveness, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, would you help us to stand secure in that promise, knowing that we don't need to grasp for stuff, try and push our agenda or fight to try and have things our own way. But Lord, we can be those who rest in you. And as we do, the fruit of gentleness grows in our lives for the good of those around us and for your glory. Lord, we ask, would you accomplish this? Would you accomplish it in our hearts now? For your glory, Lord. Amen.